Welcome to Glam City. We're well into the second season now, but if you're joining us for the first time, it's not too late to go back through the archives, as it were, to listen to our previous episodes. We've covered colonial gastronomy, decolonising the archives, the first Mardi Gras and Australian Gypsies. For those of you who haven't listened before, Glam City stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. And we're going to lift the curtain and take you behind the scenes to reveal the marvellous archivists, curious curators and purveyors of cultural heritage who are working in the glam sector across Australia. On this episode of Glam City, we're really pleased to hear some global perspectives on repurposing industrial heritage sites for cultural use. And you might be familiar with some of those sites around us, such as down at Piermont, the docks, carriage works. Is there a place near you that's been repurposed in recent years that you can think about? And to talk about this, we want to welcome two guests today. Firstly, Layla Elmus. Hello, Layla. Hello. Layla is a historian with the City of Sydney, and she isn't new to podcasting. We didn't end up being a podcast, but yes, it was a regular segment on FBI radio about Sydney's history. Scratching Sydney's surface. That's it. Probably can still find it on your favourite podcast app while you go looking for Glam City. Thanks for joining us, Leila. And we've also got Stefan Berger, who is a UTS Distinguished Visiting Scholar from Germany at the moment. He is the director of the Institute for Social Movements at the Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany, and chairman of the Committee for the of the Library of the Ruhr Foundation. Hello, Stefan. Hi. So Stefan specialises in nationalism and national identity studies, comparative labour studies, and the history of industrial heritage, which we'll be talking about today. Now, I'm glad we've got both of you here. What is this term heritage? What does it mean? Well, there's a lot of different definitions out there. Um, So I guess one that I guess seems pertinent to the work that I've done over the many years is something that's at risk. So it's something that's old, it's a relic, it's a landscape, it's a place, and it's it's at risk. But it has had different meanings over time, and indeed multiple meanings at the same time. Is, is that How do you understand it? Well, I'm coming um, more from uh, critical heritage studies, and uh, therefore I would probably uh, refer to Laura Jane Smith, uh, who has often emphasised that uh, it's not so much the materiality of something that characterizes heritage, but the meaning-making. So, you know, what meaning do we give uh, particular things, material or immaterial, and why do we do this? Why do we endow certain things of the past with meaning? Mm. So in that sense, uh, Stefan, heritage does change over time as those meanings change. Can you map some of those changes? Are there big shifts that have happened in the way we think? Yes, I think there have been uh, big shifts. I think uh, if you look at the preservationist movement that I guess arises in the 19th century, then they had a particular idea about what was worth preserving, uh, what should belong to heritage, and that was often linked to notions of either regional or national heritage. Uh, that was also often linked to a particular middle or upper class culture. And so, for example, what uh, I'm interested in most, industrial heritage, was only really becoming a form of heritage, arguably from uh, the post-Second World War period onwards. It was not really regarded as uh, a form of heritage before then. There's been a real sense of some of those heritage places becoming special 
in recent years. Uh, and I'm thinking of the history of Sydney because that's what I know the most about. But in Germany, for example, uh, I presume a lot of these places were just developed or redeveloped in time. What do you think was the catalyst for them to become special if we're thinking of old industrial sites and so on? Well, uh, I'm coming from the Ruhr, and the Ruhr is probably the most important industrial heritage region in Germany, and possibly even globally, because we're doing this kind of global project on industrial heritage at the moment, where we compare different regions of heavy industry, and I haven't seen anything quite like the Ruhr uh, anywhere else uh, in the world. So there has been a massive attempt from the 1960s onwards, really, to preserve that industrial what heritage. What sort of sites are we talking about? We're talking about former steelworks former mines, canals, uh, railways, slag heaps, uh, housing estates. So the whole landscape of uh, industry that developed throughout the 19th and 20th century. What does it mean to preserve that extent of a landscape? I mean, there's huge material infrastructure there that you're talking about preserving. Is it rendered a museum? Is it lived in? Is it repurposed, reused? This is a term, reuse? It's very different. Um, there have been some of these sites have been turned into major museums. So, for example, you have the main regional museum of the Ruhr area, the Ruhr Museum, which is located on what was the biggest mine in interwar Europe, Zeche Zollverein in Essen. Uh, it's also a UNESCO World Heritage Site now. So you have this museum that was put into the former coal washery. Um, in quite a daring attempt, I would say, to put a museum into what was, to all intents and purposes, a big machine uh, where very few people actually worked. Um, so uh, you have that. You ha also have um, landscape parks. For example, one of the former steelworks in Duisburg has been turned into a landscape park where the steelworks is part of a wider park landscape where there's a lot of kind of leisure time activity going on from mountain climbing to uh, diving to, uh, well, all sorts of other things. Um, you also have the development of uh, housing or of public buildings, including university buildings or city council buildings on uh, former uh, sites of uh, mines. So it's a very diverse kind of repurposing that is going on. But it's certainly true to say that a lot of it would be impossible without public subsidies. Although the main mining company has a subsidiary company, RAG Montan Immobilien, which only is transforming former mining sites into something else, into kind of post-mining sites, and they are very profitable. So mm. uh, there's also money to be made there from industrial heritage. Mm, that's a very interesting concept, post-mining. Mm. Post what would be the equivalence in Sydney? Well, we do have a number of sites that, you know, when Stefan's talking that I can think of. So we do have sites that have been repurposed into parks. So um, a lot of people might be familiar with the large chimneys, which are at Sydney Park, and that's a former brickwork site. Um, and that whole site has been remediated, so it's into public space, but you still have these remnants of... Um, industry, which are on the on the edge of that park, and are also sort of a signposting it and a and a landmark, and also the Paddington Reservoir Gardens, which is an old reservoir, nineteenth century piece of water infrastructure. Um, and when when works were being done, they sort of appreciated the aesthetic qualities. So it's it sort of has these arches. It's something that's been designed by engineers. So it's got that sort of quite I th I personally I think it's quite beautiful so it's got this sort of elegance to it so you've got those sorts of things 
but then we also have other other sites which are sort of dotted throughout the city. So we mentioned Carriage Works before. Also, of course, that's part of the former Everly Railway Yards. And on the other side of the tracks is actually the Australian Technology Park. And they have very different approaches to conservation there. And I think you have very different experiences in the space based solely on so the fabric is maintained in both situations but the way it's interpreted also really mediates how you experience the space and then there are other things so powerhouses seem to be kind of a popular thing to convert into public use and sort of cultural use so in Canberra there's like a powerhouse it's the glass works we've got consular powerhouse and also of course the powerhouse museum which you know if you haven't actually been in there for a while it's actually a good reminder to go inside of it and see because it's pretty much mm. intact um, apart from being used as a museum space. So, And I do think it's interesting because we're talking about these things that we're valuing as cultural heritage essentially, as cultural assets even, and they do have a monetary kind of benefit and a social well-being benefit. But it's really at the moment of de-industrialisation really that they start to kind of gain a currency and mm. appreciation. And, and I would say there's sort of a certain nostalgia Mm. that is also linked to that. But I think it's quite complex because of the way people work and use that space. It's interesting thinking about that idea of nostalgia because these industrial sites were the sites of thousands, tens of thousands of people going every day to work at them. And so the deindustrialisation, I guess, is also a reminder of big changes in employment and often a change from employment to unemployment. How does that play out in the, in I guess the memories, people's memories? I would say it very much depends on how successful the economic restructuring of those regions um, has been. There obviously have been regions where this has not been very successful, such as, for example, in the Rust Belt of the United States, or also um, in um, northern Italy. Um, in Asturias, in Spain, there is often a certain bitterness um, about the memory of deindustrialization, which uh, also is very region-specific, the way it finds expression. For example, in Asturias, uh, it is linked with a strong memory of political uh, labor movement that had a long history of revolutionary struggle, and that is seen as a kind of... uh, positive antidote to the kind of apathy and uh, the lack of future in particular for the young uh, in that region. In regions where economic structuring has been more successful, such as the rural region in Germany, I think there is uh, now an almost a kind of all-party consensus about the merit of industrial heritage, which is seen as a kind of reminder of a proud history of the region on which a new future can be built. So that's a very kind of different kind of um, mm. uh, meaning-making. Using heritage for future looking or something anticipation isn't it in a way exactly yes yeah and yeah. as industry heritage as industry too, yes you know, kind of mm. creative yes. reuse a heritage of, industry yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah which it, complicates some of the critical approaches perhaps um it does to a certain extent for example i think the uh, enormously homogenous landscape of industrial heritage in the Ruhr is built on what developed after 1945 in Germany and that in the English-speaking countries is mostly referred to as Rhenish capitalism. So a particular form of corporatism in which the state, employers and uh, unions work together. So there is little notion of antagonism and that also means that the antagonism that was there in the region in the past 
uh, is often falling by the wayside in sort of uh, memorial practices. So uh, there are certain things that are remembered and there are certain things that are silenced in that memorial landscape. And I think it has to do with the way in which the regions define themselves presently and how much contention there is about the past in those regions. So silencing is um, often a a theme that goes alongside remembering and it's great that you brought that up. Um, So could you say a bit more about which voices get heard, particularly in the Ruhr? Well, I think it's, as I said, it's a kind of landscape in which there is the notion that uh, coal and steel have been very important for building the region, that um, the region has then become very important for building the nation, because in some respects this is the powerhouse of German industrialization, and therefore one of the regions in which, if you like, the origins of Germany's rise to a major power in 19th century Europe uh, is located. So you have a kind of regional mindscape, but you also have a kind of national mindscape uh, that is um, endowed with meaning through industrial heritage. There is a strong technological bent to the heritage, the kind of innovation that came from the region. Um, um, It still is a region in which you have uh, leading export companies for mining technology, which are now uh, not so much um, delivering to uh, the Ruhr, but delivering to places like Australia or China, where there's actually still active mining going on. So, um, but what you perhaps get less is a kind of notion of industrial conflict, of a kind of communist past, because the Ruhr was also uh, one of the bastions of German communism in the 1920s during the Weimar Republic. And remember that Germany had the biggest communist party in the world outside of the Soviet Union. So um, there are certain elements in a way that um, do not get the same attention, although it would, I think, be unfair to say that they're completely silenced because if you go, say, to the Ruhr Museum in Essen, you will find references to that. And, I mean, in, what about the kind of environmental impacts of mining? I mean, that's something that we're very conscious about in the present, but in the ways we remember these mine sites, is that present as well? That is really fascinating in the Ruhr because you have, for the last 15 or 20 years, uh, a discourse developing about uh, the industry, uh, mining and steel, being very detrimental to the environment, destroying the environment, reshaping the environment to an incredible extent. But then you also have a kind of a narrative where, if you like, the main protagonists, uh, politicians, uh, industrialists, uh, unionists, have seen the light and there is a kind of healing process which goes alongside deindustrialization. So deindustrialization is portrayed as a great opportunity for uh, bringing back nature. And there is a specific term that is used, industrie natur, industrial nature, uh, which refers to the kind of nature that develops on previous industrial sites. Mm. Uh, That is, um, if you uh, believe the uh, people who are propagating this, uh, much richer than the original nature because it has gone through the process of industrialization, which was also a kind of process when many new forms of plants and of animals were introduced to the area. So uh, nature is kind of reconquering industry and is developing in forms that is more interesting than the old nature. So 
it's a, it's a, again, it's a very triumphant story. Oh, and quite um, a technological one too and in also, some ways. Yes, absolutely. Mm. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find us. Today we're discussing the ways in which historical heritage sites are repurposed for cultural ends. And we've been speaking about industrial heritage in the Ruhr. And I'd now like to bring it back to Sydney to talk about some of the aspects there. Stefan was talking about some silencing and the sort of histories that aren't necessarily remembered in cultural in our cultural heritage of industrial sites what sorts of what stories perhaps aren't remembered in sydney's cultural heritage of its in industrial history well i guess what i you know because i come from a i guess a heritage practitioner background so when i when i think about heritage i think about the materiality and so what often we're left with are these sometimes called cathedrals of industry or a shell of industry they're these sort of architectural sort of wonders in a sense but what what's missing sometimes is is the imprint of the human on that and also the the imprint of the industry itself so you've got the the human bonds the um, the work practices the unionism so those bonds between the workers but then also the actual industry itself so you know you, if you go to a nice sort of adaptively reused heritage site you're not seeing there's not the smell mm. there's not the um, the pollution the noise the noise so it's a, it's sort of a very um, mediated experience so you get the texture and, and I think Personally, what I quite like about a heritage site, and particularly industrial heritage site, is the patina. So you get, you know, the exposed brickwork. You sort of have these steel arches, and so there's there's a sort of a, a majesty to those things. But you kind of don't have the feeling of of what it might have been like mm. to work there. And I think we can imagine it and mm. we can conjure that up. Mm. But sometimes it is hard to interpret that. You worked quite a long lot last year on the um, centenary since the Great Strike in 1917, and I went down to it was a fabulous exhibition down at. Works, and it was a really interesting example of what you're just describing. Where you walk into Carriage Works, and it's it's extraordinary, and you get the size of the sense of the scale and the size. Um, but here we all are, a hundred years later, in our nice jeans made in China, um, and we walked or rode, rode electric bike, bicycles there, or caught a bus. Um, and only 10% of us might be in a union. We don't get a sense at all of the Great Strike by just walking through that space. And it's up to historians and heritage practitioners to interpret that for us to get a sense of, OK, there would have been people brawling and fighting and would have been filled with people and their lives. That's right. And I think, you know, doing an exhibition is a really great way to evoke that. And, you know, certainly I found that quite a rewarding experience and it helped me understand that particular site. In a, in a sort of quite a deeper way. Um, but there are other ways that you can sort of try and interpret those things through, I mean, whether or not it's successful or not. But on the other side, there's a lot of, you know, heritage plaques. But sometimes I do think you need other sort of material culture to sort of bring you back and give, give you a sense of mm. what it might have been like. Um, so one of the features of that exhibition was actually large trade union banners. And they particularly uh, were <coughs> resonant for people who came to that exhibition, whether or not they actually you know, historically, wherever on that particular site is, I guess, a moot point. But the fact is that they did for people coming to the exhibition sort of give them a sense of a trade union past and of mm. a working history and a working life of those people. 
But also the thing, I guess, it's sort of interesting to think about is the tension that people have um, in remembering their working lives or the working lives of industries because sometimes people, when they remember it, they remember, you know, this pride in workmanship and, and making something and being a valuable member of, of you know, society and the economy and, you know, and losing that is obviously sort of very disempowering. But at the same time, they do talk when, you know, we have oral history interviews, um, they do talk about the um, all of the other stuff that was unpleasant. You know, they might not have actually particularly liked the workplace or mm. found it a tense place to work or, you know, the pollution is, is it was very intense. Mm. So I think there is a sort of inherent sort of... I guess, contradiction sometimes in how people remember that and then how you go about interpreting that as well. It's not sort of a single narrative. Mm. What are we commemorating in a yeah, sense? Yeah, that's right. It's always struck me that, you know, when you have Sydney Open and that there's the underground tour, I can't remember what it's called, where you go under the tunnels. Into there's the a few. There's one in Central Station and you can go to the platforms that were never that's realised. Right. And it's sold out. It's always sold always out. Always sold out. And I wondered if um, it's always sort of struck me that the immersive quality of that experience does enable some of that kind of bodily experience that you've, you've been talking about. It's tangible. That's right. And I think people really like to go to places that are inaccessible and are hidden. There's a certain sort of, I guess, a frisson that you, you have when you go into those spaces. And I've, I've been on that tour and um, also into the tank stream. And they, these places you sort of hear about, but, you know, actually going mm. into it, you feel like you've discovered it. And going to Cockatoo Island is somehow similar in some ways because mm. so much of that industrial, I mean, that's a fascinating site because it's been reinterpreted. So many versions of Sydney's past exist there and they have been reinterpreted in very different ways. Some have been reused, some are preserved, some, you know, are still working. Mm. Uh, is that within the city of Sydney's your remit? Or is that no, but it's certainly a place that I've visited several times yeah. and you know I do appreciate that quality and the layered history that you get there and I think it's a really it's a very concentrated place where you can experience convict history and then you know industrial mm. history side by side and the ways of memorializing it that's right yeah um, um, which you, you can stay in the building if you want you know and sleep there you can play tennis on the court you can kind of you can glamp glamp yeah. um, that's you right you can attend a kind of concert on the foreshore but then you can also peer into these industrial buildings and work it that seemed to be like someone left their tools yesterday and just walked off it's very possible did. that they yeah. did yeah. Um, that makes me think about audiences and and who is going to these places. Stefan, do you think in the case of the Ruhr that many of the people who are attending these places are from the Ruhr and it was their, you know, perhaps their parents' or grandparents' workplace or are they international visitors or visitors from other parts of Germany wanting to see a piece of German history which is no longer necessarily still functioning? I think it's a mixture and there is actually uh, quite a big debate about this in the Ruhr because in particular the iconic site Solfa and the UNESCO World Heritage Site and the museum there has been accused uh, in the Ruhr of being a bit like a UFO that has been sort of uh, deposited in the middle of Katernberg, which is this uh, suburb of Essen, and that it actually has no relations to uh, the suburb, that uh, buses of tourists get shipped there and uh, they go there and then they get shipped out and they never get to see the uh, district that is actually surrounding the mining site and where the former miners 
lived and the uh, you know the retired miners or the the descendants of the miners probably still live and it's quite a kind of poor working class uh, district of uh, Essen unemployment in the Ruhr is much higher than the national average in particular if you go to the northern Ruhr um, you have in places like Gelsenkirchen unemployment of 14%, whereas the national average is 5% at the moment in Germany. So you do have a lot of kind of social problems in those areas. So um, there is a kind of uh, critical debate about to what extent that industrial heritage has been commodified, commercialized, touristified. And tourism has certainly been one of the success stories in the Ruhr, because if you had told anyone about 30 years ago uh, that there would be significant tourism, in the Ruhr, uh, you would have been laughed out of court, I think. And now I think there is uh, something like six million tourists every year who come to the area largely to see industrial heritage. So it's been a success story, uh, but to what extent it also uh, connects to the actual neighborhoods, uh, in particular the working class neighborhoods, where you do have a lot of problems which are not really addressed by um, the kind of movement for uh, industrial heritage. Although, having said that, there are also many social movements that promote industrial heritage but that also promote the kind of uh, social responsibility of major companies or of uh, local government. The whole industrial heritage movement initially in the 60s came up as a social movement from below where uh, politicians, industrialists, unionists, uh, city governments were very skeptical about maintaining that heritage and uh, really the idea was to get rid of it as much as possible uh, and it was a social movement from below that actually started saving, say, housing estates, former working-class housing estates, or campaigned to keep uh, mining sites uh, preserved. And um, it was only then in the course of the 1970s and 1980s that politics, uh, economics came on board. And then you have the International Building Exhibition in the Ruhr in the 1990s, which really grounds industrial heritage in the region in a major way, and it becomes that kind of fairly homogenous landscape that I've been talking about before. Is that the same process of where the impulse for preservation comes from in Sydney? I think there's there's some parallels there. I mean, obviously, we're not such an intensive industrial centre as as the Ruhr, but there there are I think there are those sort of imperatives around. Um, well, in the 1990s, we did have a very strong heritage movement, so strong heritage practitioners. We had a heritage act and legislation that people followed, and you know, particular kinds of heritage were listed and on a state heritage register. So it was sort of a quite a strong regulatory framework, which I guess was maybe state based. So it's maybe different. I don't I don't get the sense so much that it's coming from the ground up. And a lot of our industrial buildings were often owned by the government as well. So mm. they um so when they're repurposed then that's that's who does the repurposing. The difference would also be in other areas where we've got warehousing and things like that, which then also have a sort of a, a currency to them and an economic benefit when you repurpose for apartments and so on. Mm. Yeah, I guess Barangaroo is one of the big sites that has been re Purposed. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a former you know working harbour site. Um, that but it's is, interesting what heritage is being remembered there, mm. isn't it? That's right, and the and whether the the working harbour side of it is sort of doesn't seem to be as strong. Oh, it's. Mm. I, is there any evidence of I, it? At not all? really. No. no. On the other side, so Jones Bay Wharf and things like that, there's still remnant heritage, but but on that particular site, I would say it's it's not really tangible any longer. 
I called a water taxi the other day because I had some international visitors and it's a very good thing to do. And our water taxi uh, driver used to work in the um, military, in the Navy, and had trained on Cockatoo Island. And he gave us a tour of Sydney Harbour's industrial past. That was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. And I've, I guess I'm not a sailor, so I don't look at Sydney from the water like that. But it was also not a leisure it's not Sydney Harbour as a leisure activity. It was Sydney Harbour as a working it's a very harbor. working place. Yeah, and the, the remnants of that are everywhere, but I don't know how to read them. And you don't necessarily know how to stitch them together. Totally. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Which is why we need heritage practitioners, Tamsin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that brings us to the funky end of our show, What's Up in Everybody's Calendars in the Land of History. Tamsin. Well, I am going to get down at the Sydney Biennale, get mm. down an arty at the Sydney Biennale, and I uh, had actually a sneak preview yesterday of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, in you know, a bit of it, and it's incredibly historical. It's a very intertextual, looking back to art of the 60s and the 70s and then rethinking, you know, there's a conversation across time that I think uh, is a real theme, at least through the bit of the Biennale I saw. So, you know, I wonder if other people will pick up the same sorts of resonances. What about you, Stefan? What's in your diary? Well, I can probably make a bit of advertisement for uh, a new book that is coming out this month with uh, Routledge. Its title is uh, Industrial Heritage and regional identities. Well, that's uh, timely. Which uh, looks at uh, a great many regions globally from uh, China to um, South Africa and from kind of uh, Europe to Australia. There's a chapter by Eric Eklund on uh, Australia, my colleague from Federation University, and uh, it will be discussing a lot of the issues that we've been discussing this morning. Fantastic. Layla? I'm really looking forward to getting to the Australian Museum and having a look at the Gaddy exhibition. Um, so this is an exhibition that's really going to focus in on um, the Gadigal people, the Sydney Aboriginal people. And I just, you know, one of the things I do at the City of Sydney is look after a website called Barani. So for me, being able to go and see an exhibition that relates to the, the work I do, mm. I'm really looking forward to it. And it's also tied in with something called the Weave Festival. So there's a lot of public programming that goes with that for the next month or so. And Anna Clark. I'm going to get my skates on and pour over the program for the Sydney Writers Festival because too much history is never enough quite frankly. Never enough. No, and there's, there's plenty to be had as usual. So that brings us to the end of Glam City for today. You can listen to us anytime you like. It, you don't have to, you know, have a diary entry. Just download us straight to your mobile device. You can do that by heading to any of your podcast apps, iTunes, Wooshka, whatever takes your fancy, or the 2SER website at 2SER.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter. You'll find me, Tamsin, as Cap and Gown, and me, Anna, as at Anna Hope. Clark. And you can probably find Layla on Twitter too. I'm Lala Mouse. Layla Mouse. Uh, this is a podcast made by the Australian Centre for Public History with support of the wonderful 2SER 107.3. You can also email us at glamcity at 2SER.com. So thanks to you, Layla and Stefan for being great guests today. We'll see you Thank back you. here uh, next week for more glam conversations. Oh, glam out. Glam out.